tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Hi, y'all, and welcome back to The TV Campfire. This is our spooky episode, so get ready to... Wait, what? You know, Halloween, spooky. Mm. Don't worry, there, there are no ghosts. Emily, there's no ghosts. More like today's conversation features some spooky good composers. Okay, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm trying, good with that. I'm trying to keep it festive. I know your ghost feelings. I didn't mean to like get you upset about the fact that there could be ghosts for the listeners at home i feel like you should know that emily's great one of her two greatest fears is ghosts our ghost is our ghost our ghost is ghost i am is a ghost petrified of ghosts and although i am fascinated by them and she i loves do cemeteries. also love cemeteries i love cemeteries but here's the thing Ghosts don't haunt cemeteries. Don't they, though? No. I mean, maybe you got some vampires. Maybe you got some werewolves. I don't know. Zombies. But ghosts, I don't believe, haunt cemeteries. Ghosts haunt places like houses. The reason I know you're wrong (laughs) is... Tell me. I have been on the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland and Disney World many times. (laughs) And on that ride, you go through a cemetery and you see the ghosts (laughs) sitting on... The, he- the the <laughs> you know the Disney Haunted Mansion <laughs> ride is definitely the authority on ghosts. I don't know how this is any different than the fear. Ghosts are real. Uh huh. I am terrified of them. I know. And I think that they have no place in this podcast. You guys, fun fact slash. I'm not telling you to do this, but if you do want Emily to leave a room, just tell her that there's a ghost behind her. <laughs> It's a fun tip if you need to. Get, <laughs> I don't think I like the world or, knowing this piece of information. <laughs> anyway, I was trying to be cute. It turned real serious. I am ghost. moving on, but I'm going to go with, I'm going to let you have this one, okay. that these composers are spooky good, scary good. Oh, she upped it. And so are the creators they're paired with. I mean, I do love a good pairing. And the great thing about this conversation, aside from getting to hear about the awesome and kind of bizarre process some of these composers use, is that it's a perfect example of how every element of a show intimately informs the other, particularly with music and story. Absolutely. And three main shows discussed in this panel, 30-something, Vita, and The Americans, all have a musical language that is so specific to what their characters are thinking and feeling, what their backgrounds are, what the stakes are without having to say anything. You don't need dialogue to know that Elizabeth and Philip Jennings are in danger because you viscerally feel it in the score. Well, in the wigs. (laughs) The wigs definitely tell you when they're in danger, clearly. Yeah. (laughs) I will say I'm going to go with it's mostly thanks to Nathan Barr's butcher piano. TV Campfire listeners, that's a real thing. He describes it much better than we could, so we're not going to try. Just stay tuned for the definition of butcher piano. It's also amazing to hear the spectrum of these relationships, some decades long and some just a few years old, and how each partnership really develops this unique language between story and sound that carries through the series as it evolves. Or even from show to show, like Marshall Herskovitz and Snuffy Walden 
or superhumans Liza Richardson and Jason Kadem from our mixtape panel that was earlier this year. Go back and listen to it. Friday Night Lights and Parenthood fans, that episode is a must-hear convo from our original five-episode series. And you can find the link in the show notes for this episode. It's downright spooky how well the two conversations pair together. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> On that note. Okay, fine. I'll stop trying to make it themed. You're no fun. <laughs> Let's get to it. Settle in around the campfire for From the Sound Up, composing character themes featuring 30-somethings Marshall Herskovitz and W.G. Snuffy Walden, Vita's Tanya Siracho and Jermaine Franco, and the Americans Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, and Nathan Barr. Moderated by Previously.TV's Tara Ariano. Let's start with an ending, since we're all still devastated from it, and it was only last week. <laughs> For the American series finale, what goals did the three of you have going into the series finale in terms of the score and the story? You guys should take this. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I'd say, first of all, that we, we had a goal for the finale in general, which was we wanted to make it as emotional as possible, and we wanted to, as far as we could, destroy the audience. No offense. But, <laughs> and then, you know, our great, great aid always with that is music. Um, and, and Nate is our, is our collaborator in that. And any point where we're not uh, as successful as we, as we can be in, in ripping people apart, we can always call Nate and say, help us, help us destroy people further. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, these guys are such amazing collaborators since season one, and they've been so wonderful in helping me find my voice as a composer for the show. And um, I think one of the great things that happened early on was like we we decided to steer away from like overtly Russian sound with the score, so we avoided like the Red Army Choir and anything like that. And uh, and then we sort of the the song set the time and the place um, really beautifully. Um, PJ Bloom and uh, Amanda. Greg Thomas, and then the score was sort of free to to be what it became, and just sort of be an emotional accompaniment to whatever the scenes and the characters were. How do you t determine what's going to be scored versus set to a song? Do you know that while you're writing, or does that happen later? Um, that really happens in editing. There were a few times where we knew we had songs. Uh, I think about the Yaz storyline, and in that in that script. Uh, that song was was in from the time we broke story, but but mostly we would write these sequences and know that we were going to tell the story with pictures. Our amazing uh, producing director Chris Long is in the crowd here somewhere, and uh, you know these uh, these sequences would be realized, and then we'd sometimes not know until we found the right piece of song or the right piece of score. It's funny. There were times when there was so much story being conveyed by a certain sequence that it would require score because a song would just get distracting and there were there were other times when the songs really worked did, did you have a beat on that or was it also just sequence to sequence in terms of song versus score or? yeah i mean i think um like in the finale for example there are a couple of really amazing song placements and like to me those were we tried a score piece over the the big sort of central moment at the end with page on the train and everything and um 
it just, even to me when I was doing the score pass, like it just felt like it needed to be a song. And so there's, there's a really, I think in this show, it's always been really clear when something needs to be a song, something needs to be a score. And I, I was always totally willing to try score to see what we could do. But, but sometimes the song just works best. So. Okay. Uh, Tanya and Jermaine, you have a finale coming up tomorrow with Vita. And <laughs> there's a big uh, sort of a character and a score moment in the cold open. I don't want to give too much away and, and spoil it, but can you talk about... You know, the, the, the rest of the season's been very minimally scored, I would say, but that's a big moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and that's by design. Hold on. Hello, hello? No? On over there. Hello. Oh, there I am. <laughs> uh, that's by design. I wanted um, be that to be as true to life and as realistic as possible, so uh, we set the rules early on. At the top of the show, we can have some music at the end, and you can have one every so often, uh, like something in the middle. But like, I, I never want like the music to dictate feelings. Like, I wanted to like you see the sweat and see the pores and see that you know, and same thing um, sonically. Um, but there was this um, this. Uh, yeah, well, there was a limpia, like a, a, a spiritual limpia is happening that had to be so different than anything else we were doing. And the conversation, this is when I was like, I'm keeping Jermaine, she is amazing. <laughs> like, the, like we're my girl for life, because it, it couldn't have happened in any other way. I have an all Latinx writer's room, my, my uh, cinematographer is Latina, my casting director is Latina, my composer is Latina, and this is when that mattered, because I was like, I want something, and it was, I didn't want to use right away the word like indigenous stuff. I was like, older, mother, the line, you know, bring it like, it's like, and, and what we came up with, which was in Nahuatl, and it was this po chanted poem, and, and you had it translated, and then you did the translation. It was like this, I feel like it could only have happened because we have a shared culture, you know? Um, and that, that was really, that, that was like one of the highlights of, of, of working together, that when, when we see that thing, it's like, it has the right, it has the mother line. You know, we're bringing like matriarchy into it and I, I just, it's, it was really lovely. There's a fly. So it's a huge honor to work with Tanya because she's so amazing. She's a great writer and she's telling the, a true story about what it's like to live in, in LA, be Latino. And there's a lot of people who are um, really, you know, their voice has not been, uh, given a true um, place in Hollywood. So it's amazing that Stars has supported uh, Tanya's work. And when I found out about the show, I was completely, um, you know, 100% wanting to do it. And there was this one moment I had seen this scene. And for those of you who don't know what Olympia is, it's a healing. It's, a, it's related to Native American or indigenous practice. And uh, I saw that and I said, ooh, <laughs> that looks like a good score moment. <laughs> and so uh, we, we talked about what it would be. There was a bit of temp and I actually spent a lot of my time studying indigenous music and when I was in college of Mexico. So I wanted to always have a chant and so what she did was she wrote, she wrote a prayer in Spanish and I literally found a scholar who speaks Nahuatl which is the Aztec language. And I had him, he, he translated the words that she wrote, and it's a, it's a prayer to the Divine Mother. And it's really beautiful, but um, it's, a, it's a lovely moment, and it's nice to be able to share um, our culture with a wider audience. 
and it, the shorthand, the cultural shorthand that happened, because I didn't, because I was like, you know what I'm saying? She was like, like, you know, I was describing it, and she said, oh yeah, I have, I play these, and what, what are they called? They were like, there's butterfly cocoons with seeds in them, because I played for, because I know, and I was like, well, this is perfect, you know, like, I, I didn't even know that was an uh, instrument. Well, we used a lot, of, I used a lot of some native instruments used in indigenous cultures. One of them are, they're literally butterfly cocoons that are collected by hand, and they've got these little tiny seeds in them, and they have a specific sound, and then use some, these uh, log drums called teponatli, which are from the Aztec culture, and just tried to give it a real organic sound, very little electronica, and then there's some uh, chant in it as well. And this was your first time composing for a TV series and your first time as a showrunner. What did you learn together over the process that you didn't know before? Um, that cocoons are instruments. <laughs> <laughs> that... Well, I'm still learning. Everything's still like, we're, you know, I'm still learning. But um, it, that it can't, well, I'm very uh, aware of my gender and my color. Like, as we reflected on this, you know, <laughs> on this panel, and that, that's real that it hasn't, like a show like this, and also most of my um, writers are female and queer, because we're also a queer Latinx show. And that just existing, the fact that we exist, and I know that I'm giving, I mean, I'm giving a lot of credit to stars, but it's a radical act that we are even telling this tiny, tiny story. Um, because it's a small story, it's just that, it's the same story, it's a family story, but we just never been able to tell it ourselves, you know, and that's the radical act. So, uh, I, but I've, I just, it, I'm still learning. Every day is, is a, like, especially this thing, this like, you're writing it and then you're going to do these panels and then you have to like explain what you learn. That part I haven't figured out yet. <laughs> so, like, I'm still, it feels like I'm still learning it, but, um, but in the safety of the writer's room that it feels like, ah, oh, I understand what I'm doing. But it's these times that I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, I come from the world of film. I've uh, spent a lot of time doing films and independent uh, shows on television, but never as the composer of a series. So I, I learned that um, the, best the most important thing to do is make sure that you support the showrunner's vision with your music, because it's all about the showrunner's vision, and, and it's not about my music. And so I really want to do everything I can to help tell the story through the music in, is however way she wants to do it. And so that, that was great, and I appreciate that. So that seemed to resonate for the two of you. It's, it, it feels like you've worked with Snuffy more than not on television. Do you remember the beginning of your collaboration? Oh my what God. What that was like? <laughs> yes, I remember the beginning of our collaboration. Uh, we, had, uh, we had shot the pilot of 30-something and there was a particular sound that we wanted for the music, and neither of us can remember. It was an Australian band. They were like a jug band kind of thing. It was a strange music that we wanted. And our uh, line producer, Scott Winant, said, I found these two guys, and they're great, and you really should meet them. And he just lied through his teeth <laughs> and just made up stuff that they had done. They had done nothing, okay. <laughs> and of course, this guy had this whole life as this amazing guitarist. And if you've never seen, I mean, there are these old films going around of what he was like. I mean, it was scary amazing. And he was famous as a guitarist. 
didn't even know how to read music. <laughs> and they came in and they had done a demo. And it was just great. And we said, okay, let's go with these guys. And they only kept later. asking us if we knew how to do this, and Scott Weinert kept saying, just tell them yes. Yes. <laughs> they knew nothing, and it worked out great. <laughs> this many years later, how would you describe the shorthand that you have working with each other? Mm. You want to go first? Well, you know, talking about music's like dancing about architecture. It's yeah. like... <laughs> I, you know, I found Marshall and I started working again. We've worked together now for 30 years. Yeah. And what works best is he lives down the street from me and he just comes over and we have a cup of tea and I play things for him. And because if I send him stuff, yeah. which I do a lot, yeah. it doesn't, we don't have the resonating. And, and when we're sitting in a room together and I'm writing on the spot and trying to find the emotion of it. It's really, it's really difficult talking about music. If you get too specific, you limit the composer. If you get too wide open, uh, they don't have the, a sense of what you're looking for. So what he does is he comes over to my house and I play things for him and, and I watch him light up. And I go, that, that, that moment, yeah, that's it, yeah. Because music, the thing about music is it's pre-verbal. Okay, and it's so essential to filmmaking, but as he said, it's so incredibly hard to talk about because what you want music to do is to open up something in your audience, to allow something to happen. You don't want to force it to happen. You don't want to tell them what to feel. You want them to have the feeling that you want them to feel. So sometimes you play against the thing. Sometimes there are any number of ways to get into it, and you know, we just have to sometimes do it by trial and error. Well, I, also, I, I have to be really honest. I had my very first job with Marshall and his partner, Ed, and they taught me how to approach music in the way that they wrote scripts, and I had the best teachers in the world. That first year of 30-something, I rewrote cues for days and days, but I got an understanding of the arc of a scene and the arc of a character and the arc of a, of a season and then ultimately the arc of a show. And what Ed Marshall always had me do was never play the moment, become a character commenting on the moment. And that was, you know, I learned it from you guys and, and I've taken it through the last 30 years and, and I couldn't have asked for better teachers. All right, so let's go back to beginnings, starting with Joel and Joe, and, and we can talk to all the showrunners can answer in turn. How clear an idea do you have of the kind of score that you want when you're going into a project? None idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember um, I had worked with Nate many years before, I think on the first show that you, you did, a show for uh, CBS called Kate Brasher, and we remained friends, and I, I knew he was, enormously gifted and in the interim he had done some great stuff including uh, uh, True Blood um, and um, but what we talked about not was particular musical vocabulary but rather emotional vocabulary we talked about what we felt about the characters what themes we were exploring and what the emotional and characterological dynamic was that we wanted to explore and then we would let Nate go off and play and create things 
And then we'd listen and we'd talk to him again about those, but not talk in musical terms, but reflect in emotional and character terms. And I think maybe in a way our lack of musical vocabulary, um, I played trombone for one year in sixth grade and then I played, some, <laughs> I played some bluegrass banjo in my 20s, which was a lot of fun, but it's not a way to talk about the music for the Americans. Um, I think maybe our lack of musical vocabulary allowed us to talk around the things that were important, which was what was in our hearts, and then for him to come at them as an artist. Okay, but then was that frustrating for you? No, not at all. I mean, I think the, for me, the most successful collaborations with filmmakers ha is always when they speak about emotion. It was something they do so well, something Alan Ball did really well, too, just to sort of stay away from the super specific stuff. It's like what Snuffy was saying about if they get too specific, it, it sort of starts to limit things. And so... Um, that's, it's such a, it gives you so much freedom as a composer when they come to you and they say, I want this to be more sad, or I want to feel this for Elizabeth, or this for Philip, and, and then they let me sort of run with it, and then um, always respond emotionally, like basically, unless there was some instrument that really annoyed you. And I, I don't think there was, though. I don't think I'm right. I mean, I Just the kazoo that was. Just the kazoo, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Tanya, you already kind of answered what you, what you did want and the shorthand that the two of you had between you, but what, how clear an idea did you have? Well, um, another, you know, I know I keep talking about um, all the Latinas and all the females that are at the helm of Vida, but like all our department heads are female and I wanted all, most, if not all our um, music to be Latina indie, you know, musicians. So right. that was really important because it's like, you know, to give them a shot, you know. So, um, so that, like I, a lot of that music I... Um, I knew that I wanted, like the Susana Baca thing, like that was like, I've been dreaming of that Susana Baca ending. Like, so there were, there were some things, well, she's not um, Eastside indie, but she's Latina and, and stuff. But, but it was when we did score things like, you know, like when Vida's dying, I was like, it needs to feel this way. So it's, it's a similar, it needs to feel like this, I can't, like I can't breathe, like I get, you know, and then the, it would come back and it was like, oh my God, I can't breathe listening to that. It's brilliant, you know? So like, but I didn't, it, yeah, it was, it was a learning. Like I've directed like a bunch of plays and stuff in it, but you don't have um, the same, um, unless it's a musical, the same luxury as like being able to score the moment and it ends up being exactly, you know, what you want. Just it's different because, you know, it's live theater. Um, so th this was like also like a learning experience that she turns my, you know, potential, like the emotions into into sound, you know, it's amazing. Marshall. Well, it's funny, the only time we had a real issue was uh, when we were doing Once and Again. And um, if people remember that, it was, it was uh, made around 2000, it was about divorced people getting together. And <clears throat> if I can tell a story, um, uh, <laughs> It's probably apocryphal, but in, 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 in Hollywood, this is a story you hear often about uh, Jack Lemmon's first film doing with Billy Wilder. The first day on the set, the first shot, the first take, Billy Wilder goes, cut, amazing, wonderful, great, a little bit less. <laughs> Jack Lemmon says, okay. Says, after the second take, amazing, great, a little bit less. 13 takes later, all he has said is a little bit less. And finally, Jack Lemmon says, if I do any less, I won't be acting at all. And Wilder goes, he gets it. <laughs> we don't know if that story is true or not. But what we discovered was that there was something about this material that would 
just be ruined by anything either of us thought was normal scoring. In other words, we both went into it thinking, well, try this. And it was like, whoa, way too big. You know? And we both had the feeling, oh, is this just going to be no score? Is it going to be literally a tone? What was it? And, and then we finally found that thing. You found that thing that was so small. But once you found it, then there was a whole world in that. Then there was no problem ever again. It was so interesting. We just had to find something that was so minimal that just didn't tell the audience what they were supposed to feel. You know, finding the voice on a show is, is everything about doing a show. You know, it's really important to, to find the fabric that's built into the characters and, and find the voice of the show. It's something that I think is really important in scoring television. So that if you're flipping by the television and you come across a scene of just an empty couch, but you hear the music, you go, oh, wait a minute, that's once and again. And so that's really important to me. And we struggled with that one. We it, was, it was hard to find it. Uh, but but once we, we did, did, that was it. It was, it was easy. What was it? <laughs> no, like, what was the, like, the vocabulary? Like, what was the thing you found? It was, there was a simplicity it to it. It was like yeah. little guitar intros. Just this little guitar intros of pop records you've never heard of. It was, it was just very at one quiet, point, at one point, quiet, Ed yeah. turned to me and said, just play left-handed or something. Don't do what you do. <laughs> and, and we had already done two shows where I had, yeah. played acoustic or electric guitar, so yeah. I was kind of like, well, this is what I do, and then, well, don't do that. <laughs> do anything but that. So it became a very small voice, and once again, the material was so delicate that if you pushed hard on it at all, you skewed it. So that's what we found out about, about the personalities in the show. More great conversation from around the TV campfire is coming your way right after a quick message from our sponsor. So here's the thing, which, Kate, you know very well about me. 90% of my wardrobe is skirts and dresses because jeans are so hard for me to find. They just don't fit my body. They're not comfortable. Until now. Until now. But <laughs> honestly, like, Distilled came along, and they ship right to me. I get to try them on in the comfort of my own home. And if they don't fit, then I get to send them back and for free try a new pair. And voila, actually found a pair of jeans that fit and that I love and that I want to wear as much as my skirt and dresses. Like, this feels like a miracle that just happened. Here's the thing, like, sometimes you need to walk around for a little, like, trying them on in a dressing room for, like, five seconds is not going to tell you whether or not you like these jeans. I got the Power Stretch black ones. The fact that they have the right amount of stretch, they truly do go all the places in my life. Like, I can wander around the house in them, I can go to work in them, I can go to meetings in them, I can get on a plane with them. I mean, it's the truth. We transition from a lot of settings. All the time, from meetings to recordings to drinks to hanging out to definitely sitting on the couch and watching TV. And you want jeans that not only look good, but that are just super comfortable. I was very excited to wear these, and I maybe have worn them a few too many times without washing them. And the best part? They're affordable. Like, finding something that actually fits and actually looks good and that you want to wear that is within a certain price range is pretty miraculous. Yeah, the ones that I got were $85, and then on top of that, you get 20% off. So go to distilled, D-S-T-L-D dot com, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TV Campfire at checkout. D-S-T-L-D dot com. You're going to find your next favorite pair of jeans. Okay, other than by trial and error, we'll start with Jermaine. How, how, do, you, how do you choose a sound palette? 
for, the sh for a show. So I watched the show, and I also asked the director or showrunner for their personal preferences of what they like to listen to. And then also, if there is a, you know, a, a, some sort of a music listening list, which there was um, on Vida, just songs that she loves, that gives me uh, an idea of her personal taste. And then I, you know, I work in Logic Pro, and I have a template of you know, many sounds. I use a lot of uh, organic sounds that I create, and then I also use you know, Electronica. And, and in this particular case in Vida, um, so back to that template, I have you know, um, four or 500 sounds in a template, and that way, and I've got you know, percussion, and electronics, brass, winds, I won't get all the detail, but a whole as well, some strings, and I find out what she doesn't like. Uh, you know, she, maybe she doesn't like a lot of brass, so I stay away from that. Um, she doesn't like traditional, just traditional Mexican because this is for, she loves it, but for this particular show, we, it's Latinx. So we did a combination of electronica and hip hop with a traditional Latino element. So like on one cue, we did hip hop and electronica with, and I had a, a live you know, accordion player uh, who's fantastic and a guitarist, Federico Ramos. So really combining things is how I found the, the template for, for Tanya. Snaffy, how about you? Well, for me, it's kind of like cooking. You know, you put a little bit of this in and you try it and you put a little bit of that in. Then once you, I always tell them, let me walk away and work on some things and give me the permission to fail miserably. Because if you don't have the freedom to write anything at all and fail, then you don't get to find something that's special. So for me, it's, and also I do the same thing. You know, I really look to run it up the flag to see who salutes because it's very important. If I think it's great and it doesn't make the filmmaker love his film more, then I fail miserably. So, my real job is to find the elements that the characters speak to me about and blend them in a way so I have a tapestry that I can pull threads from for the score to play the smaller moments. Because you, you know, it's one thing to have a huge electric guitar theme at the opening of your show, but you can't do that under a love scene. And you can't do that you know, in a delicate moment where somebody's just been crushed. You just can't touch it that hard. So I just find a fabric that once they approve it, then I explore on it. And, you know, and it's all trial and error, and I'm scared to death every time I look at the empty page. But somehow I try to reach in deep for the emotion that I think they're trying to go for. And somehow it connects. Nate? Um, I have a really large collection of weird instruments from around the world. And so before any show that I start, I go and buy something else I'm unfamiliar with. Um, so for this show, so I, for True Blood, I, had, I bought an upright piano and we sawed it in half and flipped it on its back so we could access it with hammers and bouncy balls and all sorts of stuff. And then, um, and that served it well for that show, but when it came to this show, we were looking for something, again, not overtly Russian, so I used that piano in sort of a, I call it a butchered piano, in a different way with hammers, and it was kind of perceived as Russian somehow, even though it wasn't Russian. Um, but in a good way, in the right way. Um, uh, so yeah, I just, as a musician, I like finding things I'm totally unfamiliar with because it shakes. If I'm sitting at a keyboard all day, I get locked in these, this motor motion and I get really stuck with the way I'm writing. 
And if I'm sitting down to that thing or some other crazy instrument I have no relationship with, I'll think about melody and harmony in a different way. I'll make a lot of mistakes that then become something really cool in the show. So yeah. That leads into another question I had, which is how does your primary instrument inform the way you compose? Um, so I'm a cellist primarily and a guitarist. Obviously, there's a lot of cello in the Americans. Um, Philip's theme is cello. Um, Elizabeth's theme is played on that butchered piano. And um, yeah, again, I, I just think um, it's, it's about um, getting away from the, the motor memory that we all have when we practice and we play and we learn all these pieces. And so I, I, I had a cello built for me called a sympathetic drone cello. It has um, 15, 16 strings on it. And it has a, a wheel that bows these drone strings, and it has a fifth string on top, an E string. And all of a sudden, I was holding a cello, but I wasn't holding a cello. And I started to think about melody in a different way. And that's something that you hear a bunch of times throughout the, throughout the show. I love how you sell that like it's no big deal. So I had a sympathetic drone cello <laughs> built for me. Da -da 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 -da. It took the guy four years to build. Because anytime you put a motor on a resonant body, you hear the motor. So he came up with this brilliant idea of like this quiet motor. And he made it tunable, the speed of the wheel. Uh, you can make it go faster or slower and therefore change the pitch and hide it behind the sounds of the drone. It's like, it's so brilliant, it just blows my mind, but. Jeremy. You just ruined my career, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do you do that? <laughs> Jermaine, how about you? Well, in terms of, of you know, sounds and writing, I, I also feel that you know, for each project, you want to have a different, you know, group of sounds. Otherwise, we, you know, all the scores for a lot of shows start sounding the same. And the way, as an artist, that you differentiate that is experimentation. And I actually learned that from my mentor. His name is John Powell. He did all the Born and the Shrek and Ice Age. And we spent many, many thousands of hours making crazy sounds. And so um, for Tanya's show, I knew that she would like something organic. And um, she doesn't, you know, as far as, uh, you know, my, my particular instrument, I, I was raised as a drummer girl, percussionist, and pianist. So I think that the, the basic uh, rhythmic structure of all my work is very um, in tune with the story. And so whatever cue I work on, I'm really conscious, of course, all of us are on tempo and groove and, you know, as well as harmony and melody. But I think because that's something that has come so easily to me, um, I like, for instance, on this cue she's talking about, um, I did that one very freely. I actually took the click off, which is sometimes unheard of. Um, in television, the click is this little metronome that matches and syncs to all the picture, and it's kind of like God in a in a queue. And so um, it, it was fun to take it off and just I did this whole cue, which was a prayer, completely free. And so I like to play with rhythm, being raised as a percussionist. And we already heard Snuffy that you're a guitarist oh, mainly, but. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily know that from listening to the score of The West Wing, for example. So how, how does your primary instrument inform what you do? Well, I was doing a show with Aaron called Sports Night. And he said to me, he said to me, listen, I'm going to do this little show about politics. Would you be interested in doing it? It's going to be an Americana guitar score. I said, great, great. And they started shooting it. And all of a sudden, they're putting in John Williams and James Newton Howard. And... and 
he came to me, he said, listen, you know, we thought it was going to be a guitar show, but it's really working with this big orchestral stuff. And he asked me, he said, can you do that? And I lied again. <laughs> I was going to be out of work. And so an out of work musician always says, well, of course I can. And, and then I had to go figure out what that was. But ultimately, the West Wing, if you really take all the French horns away and boil it down, it's a very simple gospel melody. It's a very simple melody. It's just orchestrated in a, in a much more large way. So, but if you boil it down and play it on guitar, it's a very simple thing. Does it happen a lot that you're sold on something with, with one story and then it completely changes when you actually go to do the work? Well, yeah. I mean, most of the time, if people want something like John Williams, they'll call John Williams. I mean, honestly, if somebody's going to try to make me do that, if Ed Marshall had wanted me to do Hawaii Five-O, you know, you could have put a gun to my head. I couldn't have done it on 30-something. So most time, people call me for the voice that I have, which is one of the blessings of having no training and no can't read and can't write is that I only have one voice. So that's been the blessing of that. Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> that is so wrong. I just want to say one thing. He just finished doing six years on Nashville. I just finished doing the last two years on Nashville. So he was already working on the show. And when I came in, I felt that there had to be a fundamental change in the tone of the show. And that affected the music in a considerable way. And the thing about Snuffy is when you say he's a guitarist, for him, it's a world, okay? There's an entire world of sounds a guitar can make. And so 90% of the stuff that you were asked to do in the first four years of Nashville, we, use. we couldn't use <laughs> yeah, right. because it conveyed an entirely different tone, you know? And so that was actually an easy transition for you to make. It was still guitar, but it was a different guitar. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's and all. you were there, so <laughs> it made it much easier. So. How much time do you typically get to work on a score for an episode if there is any such a thing as typical, Nate? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the network and the show. And um, This show we had, I think at the beginning, we always started with, what, a couple weeks, maybe, or two weeks or something. It was and tight at the beginning. Yeah, but then it got worse at the end. Then we were <laughs> down to, like, four... It always does. <laughs> yeah, four or five days at the end. I, for and then it was tight at the beginning of season one. Yes. By the time we got to later seasons, we had some lead-up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think always toward the end of the season, there's a there's a crush always. So it's not it's 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 um, yeah, it, it's 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 a generous amount of time considering other shows. We had about ten days to two weeks for each each episode, and it was it was workable, and we had. I was able to look at scenes from the last episode, so she would pick out the ones that she really wanted me to focus on. So I, even though I was working on you know, episode two, I was also working on five and six at the same time. I think most shows are the same, basically, because you're all up against the same scheduling problems. You know, in the beginning of the season, great, you got some time. The end of the season, they would send me the cues. I would listen to them. I would call and say, I have a note or two. They say, don't worry, we already mixed it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Um, no, I think the key, if, I don't know if you're going to ask this anyway. To me, something that people don't talk about 
that's maybe the most important part of this process is spotting. Is, and, and it's the most fun for me um, because what you're trying to do is a kind of, I think what they call negative capability, which is to say, to see what's not there or hear what's not there. And for me, it's often literally almost a hallucinatory process where you're watching the scene and I literally think I'm hearing something. Um, but deciding where the music goes, when it exactly starts, because literally is it, you know, if it's even six frames different, it can change it. You know, a quarter of a second can change it. And how does it come in? And when does it go out? And how does it build? That whole process is really when you decide what sort of the meaning of the music's gonna be in the episode. Well, I think there's another related question too, which is should a scene have music at all? Right. Yeah. Because sometimes you find a scene that like Nate had written the most beautiful piece of music for, and but then you'd actually realize, but it actually might be a better scene if it has no music at all. And we'd sit there in the, in the final mix and we'd watch it both ways, and it would be a kind of agonizing decision. And sometimes you really, it was a very hard decision, and it was really beautiful both ways, and sometimes you would sort of immediately know, but it was almost, I can't think of a single time where we disagreed, it, 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 because it's so emotional, and, and there, you'd never need a reason, you'd never need to talk about it, you'd never need to put any words to it. You absolutely emotionally knew this scene should have that beautiful music, or this scene works better with nothing. You know, composers love that moment where you say there's no score here. <laughs> we go, shoot, wow. Not if you've already <laughs> written it, though. <laughs> yeah, well, so you have to write it three times before they decide there's not supposed to be any music there. Nate, you already referred to um, Philip and Elizabeth's themes. To what extent would you say, and we'll go down the line, you're drawing from specific character cues when you're composing for an episode? Um, uh, it depends. It depends on the show, um, but in this, I think one of the things when you have a long-running show like like the Americans, if you come up with a theme for a character, it can get old very fast. So we talked about that. Like I think season two and season three, it was like we got really tired of hearing Elizabeth's theme every time we're seeing Elizabeth, and so we started to sort of um, simplify and 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 sort of um, rethink about how we wanted to approach her character musically. Um, but this, yeah, it was a very, it was a very thematic show. Um, um, but the, yeah, I'd say the main themes that carried us through were Elizabeth's theme and Philip's theme throughout the whole season. The main title is Elizabeth's theme. So. But Nina's theme gave a, Nina's theme, you know, became a really important part of the show. That's true. And we also would talk about, there were character themes, but we'd also talk about uh, the story themes. So we would have long talks at the beginning of each season just about where we were going as storytellers so that Nate could plot out how he was going to be transforming what he brought to the show uh, musically. Yeah, and there were a couple times, just real quick, where they wanted to depart completely from the sound of the score. I think it was two seasons ago with the park bench with uh, Elizabeth and Paige. Right. We went through like 10 versions oh, of the yeah. cute. That's right. And they just wanted something completely different in that moment. And um, yeah, we got there. But it yeah. was, uh, and Snuffy, it sounds like this is something you went through with Nashville, you were saying. Well, you know, in Nashville, by the time Marshall got there, we had done four years and it was, we didn't really have much time to play characters or themes. And what I find with, with, when I'm working with Marshall is we play stories, not so much a character with a sound. We really will play a theme with a storyline that goes across maybe two or three episodes, and it keeps it, from, keeps it fresh. And yet, 
you know, you can call back on music, you can play a little piano theme, and then be in a totally different scene, but all of a sudden be in somebody's head because they remember, oh, that's where she lost her mother, or just by playing four notes of that little theme. So, you know, you try to use themes, at least for me, that way. I don't generally tie instruments to characters. I find that becomes more Peter and the Wolf, and it's, uh, it's hard to sustain for a long period of time. But we'll do little story arcs all through the show that'll have their own thematic material. And that's the way we used it, especially when Marshall took over. <laughs> Sorry. Um, how do you, because, because of the nature of episodic television, these cues do come up more and more, you know, how do you keep it from, how do you keep a score from being repetitive? <laughs> Whoever wants to start, Jermaine, go ahead. Okay. Well, I just want to go back to the theme real quick because we didn't talk about the Vida themes. Um, there's a, a theme for Vidalia um, at the end of the first um, episode as the two girls, that it actually is on top of a bitty bitty bum bum, which you hear as you're leaving. And then I did an overlay of strings that came out of the song and then we made a thematic um, kind of a poignant uh, theme for her. But we also on Vida are not necessarily doing a lot of character themes. It's more mood, I think. And um, then that's the story on that. But how do we not become repetitive? Well, because every scene is, is changing and we write new music for every scene that she wants to do. We're not you know, recycling stuff yet. <laughs> it's different when you have six episodes versus 22 I know, for a I just have two. six episodes. But when she said, Vidalia's theme, I was like, no, we're not going to do that. And we had to like talk, and she had to talk me down. No, we're not, you know, she had to like, all right, hold on, hold on. This is what that means. And then I understood. But at first I was like, no themes. <laughs> add to that is that when people come to a show and come to a series and they get to know these characters and they get to know the, these people, they really don't want the music to change, uh, the timbre of the music to change all the time. You need to stay in that world so they're comfortable, otherwise the music starts to stick out, which just pulls you out of story. So I find that you have to be inventive and creative harmonically, but keeping the fabric of the show underneath these characters really helps it, you know, in the arc of a series, be palatable and, and get you out of realizing there's music there and just to stay with the characters in the story. I think it's really important not to bring Stravinsky in all of a sudden because I think it's a great moment for me to, you know, play a gu guitar concerto. You know? <laughs> uh, Marshall mentioned notes before. Do you get notes from the networks on score? Anyone? Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, we got some notes. I mean, I think as the show went on, we got less and less, but the main title was actually one where we had notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I blocked that out. Thanks for forgetting that. Can you say what they were? Yeah, so I wrote that simple melody that was Elizabeth's theme, and I had written, there was this chromatic note that happens. It's just a simple little thing, and I'd written it, and I thought, oh, it's going to be too out there for the network. And so I, I took that out and just played it straight. And then their note was, it feels a little straight. Can you make it more out there? <laughs> and so I literally just pulled up version one and sent it. And they're like, oh, this is great. Jermaine, did you get notes from stars? 
Not really. I mean, it's so minimal. They really yes. leave us alone. I have to say, Stars was amazing in terms of letting Tanya do her thing. And we, we would have our meetings, what was the creative team, editorial, and the editors, and you know, Tanya and I. But really, they just, just let us be, which was amazing. It's not always that way. Is that true, Snuffy? Well, Marshall gives me notes. <laughs> I get notes from him. But uh, yeah, I was on one call one day when there was seven network people and they were all telling me what they all wanted and none of it had anything to do with anything we were talking about. And this wasn't one of my shows. Yeah, no, it wasn't one of your shows. Actually, it was a, another show. Yeah. I, won't, I, won't, I won't give a name. The, the, the shows that aren't as good are much harder to do because everybody's got an opinion. And if you try to do music really by committee, it, it just kind of turns it into milk toast. If you try to do what everybody tells you to do, then sooner or later you're not saying anything. So I try to stay off those calls, and every now and then I've had to take one. But uh, networks usually give a music note to Marshall, and the music note I get more than anything from the network is more music. We don't take notes. <laughs> we don't. We're going to turn it over to the audience for a second, but I'll ask my last question, which is, we'll just go straight down the line. What is your most formative score, the one that, that has affected you the most? As it's the first one I did because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Ed and Marshall taught me everything I know doing this. <laughs> so 30-something was the beginning of it all for me, the first time I ever played music to film. And I, I, everything I've done has been built upon that block. Can, it can be someone other than Snuffy's. <laughs> well, I think that score was, I mean, for me, pretty amazing. Um, the, only, the other score for me was to a film I did called Dangerous Beauty. Uh, it was done by George Fenton that was just absolutely lush and gorgeous and, and uh, was a wonderful experience as well. So I'd say those two. Okay, so since this is the first uh, television uh, series that I've scored, this is my formative uh, in television, but in film, I've just finished a film called Tag, and I find that uh, it's one of my formative because I got to do comedy and action, which women are not usually given that opportunity. So here we go. Well, I just have this one to speak of, but um, I did write a couple of musicals, and I wrote a musical for House on Mango Street, and that, the way build, uh, building that has informed a lot of how I, you know, communicate with Jermaine now. Um, so in that way, it was formative. Can I just say that she sings quite well and could sing me all these melodies of ideas? It was amazing. <laughs> so on the iPhone, I'd be like, okay, it sounds like this. And, yeah. <laughs> This is only maybe one-third answering your question, but um, in our second or third season, I can remember we, our, our main title expanded, and so we had to, the, and then somebody said to me, it's, well, we're going to have to then have Nate rewrite the main title music, and I was horrified because I thought the main title music was, like, sacred. I didn't see how you could touch it, and I was very upset about it. And then, then he wrote, he added some pieces to it and expanded it and changed it. And it was incredible. I couldn't believe what he had done. It sort of was the same, but he had also fundamentally changed a part of it and changed the character of it and added this thing that I don't have the words to describe, but I loved it so much. And it just was this lesson for me in nothing sacred and anything can change, or at least if you've got Nate, anything can change. I, <laughs> I, 
I'll let our partnership stand, and you could speak for both of us on that. <laughs> Get to the audience questions. Um, I mean, for me, um, scores that like not that are not my own, like um, uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, The Third Man, and like Jaws. Those were like three scores that when I was a kid, like I heard, and I was like, these are just each in their own, so amazing. And that was part of like what started me, I think, on this journey. Um, and then I just, I don't, I don't know it's a specific film, but just like the earliest films, which are such a struggle. Um, you know, you're on the floor of the shower crying in the fetal position, <laughs> just trying to figure out if you could even do it. And I think those formative scores all kind of began to shape sound of what becomes our voice. Any questions? Uh, Snuffy, I first became aware of your work from uh, My So-Called Life, and I was wondering if uh, you can talk about how you came up with the themes for that, like that kind of percussive, but you know, melodic and, and everything. Um, just, can you just talk about that score for us? Well, you know, there were a lot of marimbas in that score and electric guitar. Uh, that all started from the opening scene in the pilot, and it was a percussive beat that had them running through the halls of, of high school, and, uh, and they said, oh, something like that. So, so I sat down and I started playing with some guitar ideas. The end cue of, of that pilot had the guitar figure that I used in the main title. So what I did is I kind of married the opening of it with the end of it, and then I brought in a singer, a fellow who's a great record producer now out of Nashville, and I brought him, I said, I need vocal. So we just sat there and sang for a while. And, uh, you know, it was just like, just like cooking a soup, you know? We just try a little of this, try a little of that, and then you get it kind of mixed, and then you hand it in, and you, you just wait for them to butcher you. <laughs> and then when they don't, you know, then you're on to something. It was that simple. Wait for the mic, I'm supposed to say. <laughs> and this one's for you, too. I, we love Friday Night Lights. Music is so distinctive. And I've seen other shows almost try to copy it in a way. I mean, it, it's like you, you started something with that. It's very legendary and, and special. I wish I could say I started that. That actually comes from a band. And right now I'm drawing, huh? No, no, you guys know who the band is. It was the original film was tempted by them. And then they tried to bring them in to score the pilot for the TV series, and the guys didn't have any understanding of film. So Jason Kadams, who I'd met actually through Ed Marshall, uh, said, can you do something like this? And, uh, and I said, sure. And so what we did, we approached it totally backwards. We would spend 30 minutes writing the whole score and spend three days producing it because it was all designed with single note guitars and delays, and we had a we had a format to start from. And then, you know, I was from Texas, so it, was, it made sense to me, it all, it all worked for me. And we would spend more time in the production than the actual writing. The writing's very simple, but it's in the production that it takes on, you know, the kind of open expanse. What and, uh, in production, what does that mean? How do you change it? Well, we would spend three days uh, you know, layering guitars on one note at a time. And, and it was all done. I bought a, a collection of Japanese guitars from the 60s, and it was all played on those guitars. So I cast 
the show with really odd instruments that had their own sound. And it was all based on the score from this band. Uh, Explosions in the Sky, thank you. It was all based on, on some pieces they had done for the original movie. So I wish I could take credit for creating something fresh, but you know, I gotta give credit to the guys. They really gave us a place to start. Last question right down front. Hi, can you each tell us uh, one current TV show that has music you really admire that's not one you're working Great on? Great question. <laughs> Ask them. <laughs> I have one, Mozart in the Jungle. I love that. Love, love, love that. Um, I'm obsessed with two, Peaky Blinders and um, Game of Thrones. I Game like being Thrones. told how to feel, you know? <laughs> yeah. Not on my shows, but I like other shows. Um, Matt Quayle, score to Mr. Robot. Matt's a really good friend. I love his stuff. It's really fresh and, and unique. What, what did you play, Mr. Robot? Mr. Mr. Robot. Robot. Oh, Mr. Matt Quayle. Yes. No? Is that? Okay. Good. Thank you so much Thank for you. having us. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATXFestival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season eight of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2018. And for more information on attending, please visit www.atxfestival.com.